Hello and welcome back to the Human Interest Podcast. I'm Evelyn Mambui. For the entire month of August, we have been listening to stories of women humanitarians talking about their experiences, their challenges and lessons. And today is no different. So Evelyn, my name is Anne Wamboi Njuguna. I'm the Disaster Risk Management Specialist. It's a mouthful DRM specialist for the region of East and Southern Africa RESA. Working for Plan International since 2016, November, so I will be three years in plan. I think I feel like I've been here for ages now. Anne is talking to us about her journey as a humanitarian worker, and I'm hoping that through her story we are able to laugh at, if not admire, her brazen attitude and all round collect life lessons from her story. Here's Anne Wamboy, Joanna. So I've worked for disaster in the area of humanitarian work for almost entire of my career. And that means that I only worked for one year outside humanitarian work, and that was Kenya Airways as a near hostess. And after around 10 months, I felt I did not fit and left went and did my master's in health promotion. So after I did my master's in UK University of East London, I was very categorical because I met so many Kenyans in the UK. I wanted to come back home and work in a refugee camp. That's all I knew. I just wanted to come back and go to a refugee camp. And so I met my friends in the UK who had gone looking for greener pastures in the UK, teaching um, those kind of things. We were actually doing professional jobs. And I'll tell them I'm waiting to submit my thesis and go back to Kenya and look for a job. And they would say, how much will you earn? I mean, here I'm earning 1,000 pounds. You will earn 500 pounds. That motivated me. That was 50,000 Kenya shillings. Yeah, I will go back. I submitted my thesis and I was on my flight back in one week. And I came and looked for a job from one organization to the other. This is around 11, 12 years ago, almost 13 that was 2005. Oh, it's 14 years. I remember my first destination. I had a friend, a friend of a friend who worked for Care Kenya. And my first destination was Care Kenya, Care International in Kenya, Hanenji. I actually went to the gate and asked, can I see the country director? I thought, I think I was very young. I was extremely young. So I don't think I knew what it meant. But since, I mean, some of the NGOs like Care International were very open. If you want to see the country director, nobody can stop you. You say you want to see, you'll just be asked, do you have an appointment? No. So you're told, okay, go. You go to the receptionist and you say, no, I don't have an appointment. I just want to see them. And so I ended up in less than 10 minutes, I was seated with the country director. <laughs> I told the country director, this is my CV, I'm looking for a job, I'm a nutritionist. Uh, he looked at me and said, at the moment, you don't have a job, we chatted a bit, but if something comes up, we'll call you. And I left my CV. Uh, I was also naive that I actually expected a call back. Mm-hmm. And then I left, I went to CRS, Catholic Relief Services. Same day with my CV, I know. I did the same. I left my CV. I left, I went to World Vision. I did the same and left my CV. And then I had done my internship with Child Fund. So I left. I went to Child Fund. Uh, I submitted my 
CV the same. Now, out of all those organizations, I only knew Child Fund, where Child Fund was physically. The rest, I didn't know. I was actually looking for direction, calling, and then taking a bus and going there. And I went home and naively waited to be called back. One week, nothing happened. I looked for the numbers. I called back the organizations, and I would say, I want to talk to the country director. And they would say, at the moment, he's not in, or he's in a meeting, whatever. Then I would say, can you give me their cell phone number? <laughs> and what? I got. Really? I actually got the cell phone numbers. So I called all of them. Uh, first time, second time, like I wasn't giving up. So eventually, I thought Child Fund would yield something because I'd done my internship there. But care did. Like I called the third time and they told me, can you come over? There's some temporary something we want you to do. And I went and I was given an admin assistant a temp for one month to hold on for one month as they were recruiting. I wasn't even an applicant for that position. So in one month, the wonders happened. Care got a, a private grant for infant and young child feeding. That's in nutrition. And uh, my boss then was head of the sector, and that was under the, another sector. The infant and young child feeding was an, under another sector. And he said, yeah, I have this lady working for me here. I was actually getting 30,000 Kenya shillings. And maybe you can talk to her. He interviewed me. Then I was interviewed by the specialist who was in Care USA, and they gave me the job. I was starting up this infant and young child feeding collaboration in Dadaab refugee camp. Oh I wanted God. to go to the refugee <laughs> camp and I was going. So I don't know what the obsession with the refugee camps was. So I eventually, <laughs> they told me, okay, one week we'll uh, do a detailed work plan and a detailed budget. We had a lump sum budget. So one week we'll work with the sector. She was a sector head of I think programs with the sector but this head of programs with the sector took so long one week passed and I'm like no I need to go can I go and develop the work plan and budget in the dab book me on the flight I was booked and the dab I was sent I was so excited full of energy wow I was just so young and all I wanted was to work and Mr. Marango was my mentor He's, he's now with Window Trust. He's a country director. And he sat down with me and said, where is your budget? Where is your work plan? I had none. I had never worked for an NGO before except doing the clerical work for um, less than a month with care. I said, I haven't done. Okay, can you use Excel? Yes. And can you use a computer? Yes. Come to my office. And we sat with that old man. And he, we did the whole budget. He showed me how to work on Excel on a budget, work plan. And there I was. Now go and implement I had, there were three camps then, so it's introduction to the camps. And my hand holder was a lady by name Irene Soy, working for GIZ as a nutritionist. She is still one of my best friends. So because we were working, Care was collaborating with GIZ and UNHCR to do infant and young child feeding within the nutrition program in Tadab. And I remember the first time we went to the hospital, one of the hospitals, and when I tell you a hospital, it's... Or the structure we'd call a substandard structure for anything. It just has a roof and the sides, the windows are open. There is no door that you can actually close. That's how they looked, the refugee camp. And then there were the metallic beds and hanging mosquito nets. That was the hospital. The walls were timber. Half. Uh, the dub is very hot, so, you know. But there are these mosquito nets that every bed had for malaria. So you get in here... And uh, you're in shock, like, yeah, I'm a nutritionist, but I've never seen this. And that ward, 
uh, in each hospital there were an average of like four to five wards, but like two were for children, malnourished children. And in that ward, I was taken around the ward and the, these children who were just bones, I mean the children admitted in the nutrition ward are just bones. The, the ones you see in Yemen, I mean you can't imagine in, this, in that era. So just protruding stomach, they thin, they can barely open their eyes, and they're with the mother there. So remember, I'm the breastfeeding <laughs> expert. <laughs> and this woman is with a child who is so malnourished because she hasn't been breastfeeding the child, the child hasn't gotten adequate nutrition, so they are probably acute, suffering from severe uh, or acute malnutrition, severe acute malnutrition. So we are like, okay, these children are here on, we used to call it F75. They're here on F75, they graduate, I think, I can't remember, too. F100, then they start taking CSB outpatient. CSB is uh, soy blend, then. Nowadays, I think they take plumping nut and all other things. And Evelyn, my heart could not hold. My first visit, it was Ifo, refugee camp, those children. And I could not understand why the mother cannot breastfeed. This child is all bones, and I'm thinking, no, I can't do this work. The children are just, you know, those... They can't even lift their hands. You're told this child is two years old. No. Two? This one looks like... I don't know, but you could even get children under six months admitted. So they were all looking way, way below their actual age, true age. So the first week, went around the wards, feeling all this and crying, and my friend telling me, no, you'll get used to it, and you're wondering, how will I get used to this? Seeing these kind of children, I mean, what is happening? And I'm wondering, can this mother just remove the breast and feed the child? What is so difficult about that? Because apparently they're not having, they're being given no formula. This F75 is for stabilizing, and they're supposed to be breastfeeding, but they're not breastfeeding. Remember at the refugee camp, the milk is not distributed. This also, actually, there is a code of, code of breast milk. Milk is not distri- freely dis- distributed. So I did the introduction for around a week. We had gone to all the refugee camps. Ifo was the worst. Crying, going back, and just wondering whether this is what I subscribed for, seeing these children like this for me. How am I going to start telling this woman about breastfeeding? So did you actually tell her to breastfeed? No, at, for the introduction, they were the nurses. That was work of the nurses for breastfeeding, and they would see the women. This is the funny, the interesting thing that you know happens when people are talking to you. They'll tell you breastfeed your child. Sometimes it's not possible psychologically. Now I know that that I'm a mother because then I was very young. I mean, this crusader and campaigner of breastfeed had never breastfed, so I knew the breastfeeding. Uh, by from page one that that WHO book from page one and it was it's this thick to last page. It was a passion. I developed a passion, you know, and that's when I started. I think knowing I have this passion for kids, so I I could not understand. And everybody, most of the nurses, uh, professional staff, were not refugees. They're probably from from the host community, meaning the host country, and sometimes are very harsh. What you would perceive harsh to the mothers. So just saying, these women are refusing to breastfeed, you know, they don't want their boobs to sag and all that. Later I came to learn that's not the only issue. When their women are displaced, there are a lot of other things disturbing them. They have other children. Breastfeeding is practically not possible. Although, you know, with counseling, they can just over- overcome and be able to. So, yeah, that was it. 
soon we started our work for breastfeeding my heart went on becoming stronger and stronger making an impact having being able now to go and talk to that woman never mind the language barrier i also learned somalia so i would i would ask how old is the baby are you breastfeeding in somalia you know such you know chit chat and then you can be able to give a bit of guidance but most of the times you did an interpreter so that was my initial experience with um refugees working in the humanitarian work uh eventually we actually translated the manual even to somalia we came up with a simplified manual which was using pictures mostly for counseling the mothers it's still in use even unicef adopted it we also have one for the for kenya but anyway out of dadab i worked doing that job for two years in dadab i loved it uh but then I moved from Dadab but since then I've been working in humanitarian work you now for 14 years we've counted 14 years uh after that I continued of course everywhere I go even here I think I talk about breastfeeding yes. just a passion so everywhere I went my work included nutrition I'm a nutritionist breastfeeding are you breastfeeding your child I actually attempted to do a bit of breastfeeding outside the work just counseling mothers talking to mothers and so on and so forth okay would you do anything different and maybe what are the lessons and the challenges that you faced then that probably are not there now or are there i think when for me being in jadab and being young i i wouldn't have called anything a challenge that i could not overcome that's the way i used to be evilly I thought there was nothing everything was there for me to overcome the challenges in Dadab we Dadab was a restricted area you could not even move outside the camp you can't go to the shop you can't go anywhere you enter into the camp and if you need to go out to outreach you you have police escort but that for me did not even hit me how insecure it was um we, of course you'd stay there for for two months and go home for a week the rnr so you of course cut off from from um from your family there were women with children who i was working with and the part of this team was my own team in the infant and young child feeding for me at that point i started implementing the policies that were in the breastfeeding materials that who had put down one of them was the breastfeeding time allowing mothers time to be able to be with their children to breastfeed over how to overcome the barriers we did that and with the then organization I was working with plan i mean care international we also uh put in the one hour breastfeeding hour that was supposed to be that taken one hour in the morning or midday in the evening whatever time the mother was free with so that was part of the policy that also came in as as, as then uh care piloting this program started in Dadab then over after at the country office after that i moved to the greater northeastern as the emergency manager for the drought and also that coupled with the then post election as a young woman because i'd only been in kenya as a young woman of course being in northern kenya i had some of my staff much older than me and some of the men a lot of it in northern kenya northeastern kenya were men we had very few women and women usually held lower positions for me for my team i remember i recruited two women 
one of them was working with, with the CSOs, with the civil society organization that we were partnering with in the pastoral with the pastoralist, and then the other one was um, under finance. That was under our, our budget. But I think one of the greatest challenge for me with that bigger role was working with men. Uh, not to be proud of it, I got rid of one staff who one day told me I'm um, like his daughter. He's, he told me, you're like my daughter. You know, what are you telling me? So that was the biggest challenge, me being much younger and coming from another community to that community to work with the staff. A lot of it went out as complaints, you know, about me. Um, and, and also not only with the management, but also compromising the work with the local population. Can I say the leadership? The leadership. A few times I would arrive in Garissa for, mon- for the usual supervision and I, w- I would find the MP waiting to tell me, I hear you've done this, you've done that, you've done this, and there was a lot of intimidation. Another time I would find uh, community members waiting for me to fight me. They hear, I've done this, I've done that. What are some of the things that you were doing that they were against? I would find a lot of complaints saying that, you know, I'm recruiting my friends, I'm recruiting people I know, I'm recruiting people from other places. But to be honest, Evelyn, I never sat in any of those interviews personally. I just oversaw them, I approved, I did that, but I did not sit to know even the face or even the name of the people who were shortlisted. So, you know, that fight, I would know also from the local member of parliament that it was instigated just to frustrate me and, you know, bring all the confusion, delaying stuff and all that. So, anyway, we overca- I overcame that. As a woman, I knew that I also had to get very strong men <laughs> behind me. And uh, I got the main manager was a man. Uh, I think, I thought he was very level-headed. So, that was it. And in some instances, you just have to be strategic, because we could not be two women. You just have to get another man to be the face of, of that office. For for me, in northern Kenya, a very strong man, but still, I would still find people coming to complain. And sometimes I also get message being told not to go. They are waiting for me. The member of parliament saying, yeah, I'm waiting for you. Go and tell that girl. <laughs> they will call, go and tell that girl, and you're gonna, I'm waiting for her. Because apparently maybe a recruitment happened and it didn't go the way they expected. And so it was I to blame. So that was then. Uh, when I was leaving that position, Evelyn, is when I got my daughter. I now transitioned to a slower me in the humanitarian work. So that is about eight years ago. I would say, yeah, eight about slightly above it when I decided now it's time to go slow. But that's when the real major challenges started. Uh, And I really thank, I would thank my first employer, Care, and my second employer, Child Fund. They really, really accommodated me in terms of me being a mother and me being able to, to do my work. But it was a major challenge because then I had to choose between leaving the child and traveling several occasions. Um, I would get, I would be ambushed. These Adona coming, and you have to leave your seven. Uh, the first time I left my my daughter, she was seven months old, and I had to go to Lodwa. And I went to Lodwa, and I cried at, at the airport. I was taking Adona, so it was an emergency, the drought response. And I remember we were two of us, my myself and a colleague from 
my from Nairobi who I think he was in the grants acquisition and of course I was in charge of the emergency response and the grants. So the donor comes and uh, we at JKIA leaving. I really had to be strong. I took my daughter to my mother's place. When you go to the airport, I couldn't take it. I cried and the donor was really in shock. <laughs> so so I'm seated here and uh, we've checked in. We are waiting to leave and from the blues I just started crying. And this guy couldn't tell, what is it? And I moved to a corner. You can imagine at the airport, you've gone to a corner and you're crying. And this guy came, what is it? And I told him, I've just left my daughter. I can't take this anymore. So, uh, and now I'm, I didn't even pretend to be strong. So he really sympathized with me. And he started talking about his own child. So we were both talking about children, which was a bit easy on me. Um, but we went to Lodua for, I think well, I was there for three days. It was the hardest time of my humanitarian work. That was the first time that, you know, it was really, really hard. Um, I had tried to negotiate not to go to Lodua, but then this is what was in my agreement, my uh, contract. I was in charge, and that grant, I was in charge of it. If anything went wrong, it was me. So that was the very first time it was hard. Another time, two months after that, uh, I was told I had to go for training. My daughter was around nine months. And I went to Bangkok for 14 days. That was also a very hard time. I struggled. I went and now I was between thinking, maybe I should just quit this job. Maybe I don't know what will happen. So uh, I managed because, I mean, I was the main caretaker of my daughter. I want to ask you first, you know, you're the breastfeeding ambassador. How is it now, you know, being away from your daughter? How did you go about the breastfeeding? Yeah, of course, when I was away, my daughter took formula. Uh, at seven months, she could take alternative because she was it was not on exclusive breastfeeding. But my daughter also never took formula. She because she's allergic to milk, so for that time she took alternative food, not formula. For me, I did what I always tell every mother: when you travel and you're away from your child, keep expressing the milk. It will just keep maintaining the flow, so that the flow when you're back, the flow. Is not hasn't stopped. So you could imagine me in the bathroom just expressing the, the first 20 minutes, I just expressing the milk into the bath and just pouring it out because there's nowhere to go. Yeah, that's what I did. I did that in, in, in Lodo, and Lodo is very hot. So it was also a big challenge, and I did that in Bangkok. In Bangkok, I had thought about taking my daughter. Usually, you know, people will say maybe you can go with your child. But sometimes when the child is very young, you have to balance between how safe is it to carry your child to this, all these new environments in the hotel environment and that hotel food versus leaving your child where maybe you are a bit sure that they'll be, the food will be safer. I mean, the environment is a bit safe because you will be leaving your child in a hotel room, which hotel room is a public place. Everybody who can afford sleeps in it and whatever goes on in there. So, yeah, I did with expressing. Um, I think when I was leaving Child Fund, this, this, it came to a point where I had to re really make a decision whether I wanted to remain in humanitarian work or just quit and just take a low profile. And that's what I decided when I was leaving Child Fund. So I took a bit of a low profile job and uh, I took a job where I was only a manager, well, senior program manager, but only for Nairobi and 
coast which was a bit easy for me because I would only travel to coast like once per month. So this meant me first cutting my ambition, uh, taking a very very small a much smaller portfolio and at some point halfway I really felt demotivated. I felt like I was lacking. So I would see all oh, these things, drought is ongoing and I'm not part of that discussion and I would be thinking, oh my God, what is happening out there? I need to be, I had the craving. Can I go for the coordination meeting? Well, it's none of my business now that I'm out of this. So yeah, um, I, I did the urban. Luckily we called it urban food security <laughs> and something we gave it, it, was, it had a fancy name and it was also a pilot project and a research project. So that was a bit interesting. But then by the time my contract was ending for the urban, I was very sure I did not want to take that route of um, just, you know, just routine. That that was so boring. I thought I needed to go back to where the action was. <laughs> for me, action was knowing it's running. Because in humanitarian work, there's no slow motion. It's running. And um, that's when I, I actually took up the position with plan. I remember my family members, I had several of my family members saying, we will support you. Um, when I came for the interview, the first interview, the father of my daughter told me, I will support you. My brother and my sisters, my siblings said, we will support you. For me, in my head, I wanted to believe they will do anything to support me. And they've been so grateful because I, this means a lot of traveling. Sometimes I don't want to travel. Uh, sometimes that's what I, I subscribed for and it comes out like that. But I think for every working mother who is the, in the humanitarian work, it's having to, to choose Will I go and serve humanity there out or will I serve my baby? So I'm required to go for deployment for one month. Do I go and take care of the refugee children or do I take care of my child? What happens if I leave my child? What happens if I don't go? Yeah, so that's the journey of every working mother. But I think also acknowledging that sometimes there's a lot of support. When you are humanitarian and you are a mother, I will not even talk about women, I'll talk about being a mother. You have to allow yourself to be helped. A lot of things sometimes are not within your control. And I think when, when we're talking about you know, women, empowering women, uh, making choices and all that, you have to really sit down and say, I'm also part of the women we are talking about and I need to be able to make a choice that doesn't leave me out there and say, no, I'll take a low profile. A lot has changed, yeah? Because when I first started traveling, uh, when my daughter was young and I started traveling, it was a favor. I remember I sat down with um, one of my supervisors and said, I cannot be able to travel because I have a seven months booth. And he was very understanding. He actually wrote to the Federation and said, I was supposed to support Africa and said, Anne will be, will, you'll give a bit, Anne a bit of time. She may not be able to travel immediate, immediately. She has a young child. Now, in some places, that's a policy. So you need to travel. I need consultation. I need to be able to plan myself. I need to know that as I take care of my child, I'm protected. I still have a job. That's that's what I'm saying. I've also seen colleagues. I've worked with colleagues and seen colleagues from elsewhere who have quit. As I speak, my friend, my first friend in the humanitarian world to orient me quit her job. 
and became a, a stay-home mom because she had to make that choice. At the point she was in, she was made to make that choice. And I'm glad I was not made to make that choice. Still fighting on. The 19th of August 2019 is World Humanitarian Day and allow me to explain the significance of this day using a speech delivered by the head of office, United Nations Office for the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs, Mr. Peter Ekayu. Today we mark World Humanitarian Day to honor aid workers around the world who often risk their own lives to help save and improve that of others. These everyday heroes are working tirelessly to provide much needed vital assistance to the most vulnerable people affected by crisis. We are here to salute their commitment and recognize the sacrifices they and their families are making every day. UN staff, INGO and local NGO personnel, state emergency professionals, doctors, nurses, host community members, or simply fathers, mothers, neighbors, thousands of people are guided by their dedication to humanity. They are driven by the most noble cause of helping others. Today we are paying special tribute to the women among them. Women are active in every aspect of humanitarian action, from negotiating access to people in need, to addressing deadly diseases such as measles and cholera, from reuniting separated children, to ensuring people uprooted by natural disasters and conflict have shelter, access to clean water, health care, food and education. Women humanitarians bring a unique perspective to this work through their understanding of the specific needs and priority of girls and women. And women humanitarians extend our global humanitarian access in parts of the world by their ability to reach women and girls who might otherwise be out of reach and bring them the information, support and services that they need. We celebrate and salute these women every day. You're listening to the Human Interest Podcast with me, Evelyn Wamboi. This is a weekly podcast that allows us to hear stories about people, what they do, why they do what they do, and about life, successes, losses, challenges, and lessons. Remember to tell a friend to listen to today's episode and keep it here during this month of August for the Women Humanitarian Series. I think we still have one more episode to go of the Women Humanitarian Series, so keep it here. The podcast is available on all your favorite apps, so subscribe, like, comment, share, and as always, spread the love. See you next week.